What a great morning. Uh, so good to see you all. And uh, we, we have been in this season of wanting the Holy Spirit to uh, continue to cultivate um, a sense of compassion inside of us uh, for other people. We're, we're calling it uh, passion for compassion because we're, we're convinced that the deeper our intimacy w- with Jesus is will inevitably lead to greater love for other people. They go, they go together. And uh, it's a joy and a delight, and you heard about that uh, from the care team. Uh, and yet the question is always asked, uh, well, the, who's, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who, where does this compassion go? And um, we've been in a season where we're focused on some spiritual disciplines during the summer months, and uh, Todd and Taylor helped us kind of think about generosity and where that fits uh, within our life. And it's, it's, it's been something that's got me thinking a lot, a, a little bit like a grain of sand in an oyster that, that irritates, you know, and, uh, and yet that irritation uh, grows into a pearl, into something, something beautiful. Um, and then we followed the generosity series, like, what am I doing with my resources? Can I do more? Is God calling me to something? And then in the midst of that, we moved into a Jonah series. And Jonah was called by God to go and bring compassion to people he hated, that he did not like at all. He wanted them to go away. He wanted them to be uh, pushed away out of his sight so he didn't have to deal with them. And the story of Jonah ends with a question where God says to Jonah and to us, should I not have concern? For these people. And uh, it's been eye opening and, and convicting to me, uh, prompting me to really consider what I'm hearing from God. So now we're in a Jesus series and we're contrasting Jesus with Jonah. In fact, I would say Jesus is a better Jonah because Jesus, the compassionate Savior, our compassionate Savior, he shows us, he shows us how to have compassion in these difficult places. And uh, we're into Thanksgiving season, and I am so grateful. I'm grateful for the abundance that we are able to experience, but I'm also super grateful for the River Church and your generosity and just seeing the whole hunger heroes thing happens. Well done. Way, way to go. I kind of wish, you know, they had a goal of 175 bags. I wish I had a tally. Anyone, anyone have some inside information? Well, let's just trust that. I think it's 190. That, I don't know. Let's just declare that. So in the midst of all that, I feel like the Spirit of God has led me to another story, this continuing series on Jesus and compassion, our compassionate Savior. And I've been brought to Matthew chapter 14. And it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, take it out. You can, you can read along and see the story. Or, as the saints have done for many, many years, you can listen, and I'll read it for you. Matthew 14 and verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them 
and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels, which I find significant and worthy of our attention. And I just, I want to make three observations fairly quickly this morning. The first one is Jesus shows a counterintuitive move through grief. And secondly, Jesus models a compassionate yes to annoying interruptions. And third, Jesus empowers compassion beyond perceived capacity. Now let me just work through those relatively briefly. Jesus shows us a counterintuitive move uh, through grief. He wanted to be alone. Why, why did Jesus want to be alone? Why did he want to go privately to a solitary place? Well, if you just look at the verses that preceded this story about feeding the 5,000, you'll discover an incredibly gruesome story about John the Baptist losing his head. He was murdered. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was his partner, his collaborator. John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus' ministry, proclaiming that Jesus was the one, the exalted one, the Messiah. I wonder what Jesus was feeling. What emotions were surging through his heart and his mind and his soul when he heard that John the Baptist has just been beheaded? for being a representative of God in the kingdom. Maybe Jesus anticipated that this is my pathway too. It's a sobering reality for Jesus. He's lost his cousin. He is in sorrow. I imagine there's deep grief. And you know, I identify with that grief. Uh, most of you know, but some of you don't know, that on March 18th, 2020, my wife died from throat cancer, a devastating, painful, difficult journey. And she went home to be with the Lord. Um, if you know that date, you know in your life that the pandemic started. <laughs> and we were told, um, go home, stay in your house, don't come out, don't go anywhere, don't visit your friends, don't touch anyone. Uh, wash your food on the doorstep before you bring it into your house. And I will say I was a recipient of the incredible care of the River Church. But sometimes people came, it seemed like in hazmat suits, and snuck up to my front door. 
you know, and dropped off a plastic bag and then snuck away as if somehow something horrible would happen in that process. Remember those days? My grief, well, it grew out of being incredibly isolated. And I'm interested in how Jesus responded. This is not a law. Um, this is not a rule. But Jesus responded in a counterintuitive way in the midst of his grief. And for me, it was doubly isolated, and I found myself pulling away, being inside, inside my own heart, my own thoughts, deep, deep in grief. And I see what um, Jesus did. The crowds came, and when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. This is the intuitive move. And I don't know where it happens in the, the journey through grief. And it's through grief because grief never ends. It's, it's, a, it's a lifetime journey. And some of you, like me, are in it for all sorts of different reasons. But somewhere along the line, maybe different for everyone, Jesus shows us that there's this counterintuitive move that at one point, out of our grief, out of our sadness and sorrow, we turn around and we help someone else. In fact, Henry Nowen said that that's, that's the reality of being a wounded healer. And you know, when you're hurting, the person you most want to sit with you and hold your hand is a person who has really experienced something, maybe not the same, but similar. Your hearts connect. So Jesus did that. He had this compassion. And it reminds me, what Paul said in this convoluted sentence in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble, and get this, with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's this sort of divine, reciprocal, miraculous turnaround to where the comfort that God gives us is this um, unending resource that we then offer to other people. So it's not superhuman. We're not being noble. We're not even necessarily being brave. We're just offering it. So Jesus shows this counterintuitive move through grief. But secondly, he models a compassionate yes to annoying interruptions. You, you know what annoying interruptions are like. He, he wanted to get away. He was tired. He was done. He needed time with the disciples. And those people just kept following him and bugging him. I can imagine his first emotions in his grief and sorrow is, people, give it a rest. You know, let me be. Let me have some downtime. And downtime is super important. And boundaries are super important. But I think Jesus models something that is interesting to me. So most of his ministry, if you see the Sea of Galilee, was in the northern part of Galilee, along that coast. And he left probably Capernaum. And you know they got in a boat with the disciples. But the, the people who were clamoring to be near Jesus, they could see them take off. They knew where they were going. They probably went along the coast and landed at Bethsaida. And they, I guess, kind of raced him there and interrupted his private, solitary time. And I could see Jesus saying, oh, no, here we go again. I just want to be away. I want to be alone. I want to rest. 
But it says here that Jesus had compassion and healed them. And Mark says he also taught them. So Jesus sort of said yes to this annoying interruption and went back into compassionate care, teaching, healing mode. And this is, I think, the key point. Not, not that we're always available, but I think the key point is that when I look at the miracles of Jesus, when I look at his encounters, most of them happened as an interruption to what he was doing. I find that fascinating. Jesus was highly interruptible. I don't feel like I am. I'm a planner. I have a schedule, and I want to I get things done, and then here comes this, this person, you know? And uh, it seemed like Jesus was ready and available. In fact, there, there's one beautiful example where Jairus was the leader of a synagogue and his daughter was deathly ill. And he came to Jesus and said, you, you got to come, come and heal my daughter, attend to my daughter. And he said, okay. And he went and the crowds went with him. He's just, everyone's jostling around him and they're going to Jairus's house to heal his daughter. And there's a woman in the crowd who's been um, experiencing horrible internal hemorrhaging, bleeding for 12 years, uh, medical community, not helping one bit. And she thinks, if I just reach out and touch the edge of his, of his robe, I might be healed. So she gets in there and she touches. And through her faith, there's this energy that goes into her and heals her on the spot. And Jesus knows that something has happened. And he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? And she panics, and then she falls down in front of him. And the, in the, in the, um, the text says that um, she fell down, and she told Jesus her whole story. I'm just amazed. He's on his way to heal this daughter, this deathly ill young woman. And he stops long enough to listen to the interrupted person's story, the, the person who interrupted him, her story. I find that so attractive, so powerful, that he was willing to just wait. And then the third observation I want to make, um, Jesus empowers compassion beyond perceived capacity. The, the ceiling that we have in our mind where we imagine what our capacity is, Jesus empowers compassion way beyond that. So they're in a remote place. Um, there's no Chick-fil-A nearby. And the disciples, what do, they, what do they say? They come to Jesus and they say, this is a remote place. It's getting late. Send the crowds away. That, that's their solution. Get rid of them. Move them on. Make them take care of their own need. And uh, what does Jesus say? This is powerful. Jesus replies, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And that just like hit me between the eyes. It just stood out to me as something really significant in this story. 
You don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Whoa. You remember last week when Todd was giving us the story of the Syrophoenician, the Canaanite woman, the outsider, uh, and the bantering that went on um, between her and Jesus? What did, what did the disciples say to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, she's, she's, um, she's bugging us. She's yelling at us. She's such a pain. Jesus, send her away. And then there's a place in, um, in chapter 19, maybe you remember this, where parents were bringing their little kids to Jesus and um, for him to bless them. And the disciples got all huffy about it. Like they, they, they got mad at the parents and said, get these kids out of here. Uh, they're, they're, this, is, this is Jesus. He's, he's important. He's got a lot of important things to do. We don't need these little snotty-nosed kids around here. Get, get out of here. Jesus was really mad at his disciples. There's this verse in Psalms, the Psalm 146, verse 7. It says this. It says, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Isn't that beautiful? And literally, that's what Jesus said was his mission. To bring release to the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to give food to the hungry. And I over-spiritualize that continually. But it literally means I give food to the hungry. I think this is what is key. They said we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, but... Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't shame them for their small-mindedness at that point. Instead, what I see, Jesus believes in them. He has this sense of their enlarged, amazing capacity to take on the responsibility of feeding them. Jesus believes in the disciples. And he wants them to have an expansive sense of what their calling is, what their contribution can be. He's saying, you can do this. You really can do this. In fact, not only can you do this, but you're responsible for this. Don't send them away. Don't turn your, don't turn your eyes. So Jesus then asked the crowd to sit down. Mark tells us that he had them sit in, in groups of 50 and 100. He took the bread and the fish, he lifted it up, and he gave thanks to his father for the provision from the land, the food that was going to supply nourishment. He gave thanks, and then he broke the bread. He broke the bread. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus is, he's just setting the stage for his own body that's given for us. And this is so significant in the story. Jesus takes the broken loaves and the fish, he blesses it, and then he gives it to the disciples. And then the disciples give it to the people. You don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. And Jesus helps them to do that. 
Ultimately, Jesus did the multiplying. I don't know how it happened. Jesus is the one who does the miracles. Our faith intermingles with Jesus' supernatural power. But it's always a partnership. It's a partnership between our Heavenly Father and our trusting in Him. It's not about, God, why don't you solve the problems? It's, wow, God, you want me to partner with you in solving the problem. I want to step back and just remind us of the beginning of the whole story in Genesis 1 and 2. It's what we often call the uh, creation mandate, or we could call it the cultural mandate. It's, it's the trajectory that God sent, set this world on with the humans in it. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created humans in his image, male and female humans, Men and women were going to be the image bearers of God in the world to show the world what God is like by how we live. And he said, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to rule over, to manage, to um, take care of this creation. And I want you to continue the creation. I want you to continue creating good. That's the creation mandate. Talk about taking the ceiling off what God charges us with, how he empowers us in this world. And then in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He's given this world to us as our responsibility to keep creating the world was a blank slate. There's trees, there's plants, but I want you to make fields. I want you to grow food. I want you to uh, make cities. I want you to build things. I want you to create things. I want you to make discoveries. I want you to make this world a flourishing place. I've given you that role and responsibility. Jesus says, I believe in you. Yet the disciples had a scarcity mindset. We only have, they said. Imagine, as image bearers of God, what our calling is in this world. And then it says, uh, in the last verse, that there were 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. My friends, that's us. That's the church. Why 12? 12 disciples... 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus is continuing that creation culture mandate through Israel, through the disciples, and now through the church. This is our role and right and responsibility. I just want to give you two statistics because uh, statistics are a sermon killer, so don't glaze over, but here you go. There is more than enough food produced in the world to feed everyone on the planet right now. And as many as 10% of the global population, one in 10 people that live on the planet will go to bed hungry tonight. That's a conundrum. And certainly it's overwhelming to me. I don't, even, I don't even know what to do with that. But I brought a bag for Hunger Heroes today. 
Isaiah predicted, he talked about where this whole thing is going from Genesis. In Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And then Jesus gave us the Lord's prayer as a model. He said to pray, God, I want your will that's currently being done in heaven. And I want that will to be lived out right now in the world that I live in. He has a vision for us that is expansive. And yet it's so significant that the disciples only had to take the 50 or the 100. They didn't have to be overwhelmed with all the 5,000 men, all the women and children. He gave them a bite-sized part. And I want to bring up Vicky and our new friend Harry. And uh, Vicky, yeah, come on. Vicky's going to tell us a little. Hi, Harry. Thank you for being here, brother. Right. Vicky's going to um, tell us a little bit about her story. Okay. Yeah. Go get them. Okay. Good morning. Thanks, you guys. We just got back from the beach service, and this one's going to be a little bit different. This is, I would like you to meet my friend Harry, and his name is Harry Hicks. How many of you have seen Harry at Trader Joe's or know Harry or have talked to Harry? So some of you. And we weren't sure how we were going to get to the beach this morning. And Robert Franklin actually happened to be standing there and helped us down. And then I'm going to, uh, Harry has a funny story about how he got here. He woke up at what time? It was like 3.30. 3.30 this morning. How many buses did you take? What happened with your cell phone? I, um, I, I lost my, I dropped my, film, my uh, cell phone on the way to, to the bus stop. It takes a minute to get there. So I had to go back. I looked for my cell phone. When I got to the uh, envision, I seen my cell phone by from here to the wall right there, and uh, a guy was swooped up on a bicycle. And, you know, it was drug acts. That's all I saw out that time of the morning. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, man, I said, that's my cell phone. I said, that's all I got. He says, I'm not getting your cell phone for me. I'm picking it up to give it to you. And so he gave me my cell phone. I said, that was the first thing. So he tried to stop me from catching that bus. And so then uh, I, by the time I get on the bus, then this uh, bus is going like two miles an hour. So I was praying. I said, I'm going to the, the church this Sunday. I said, so you might as well get away from me, Satan. I said, I'm, I, I, said, I'm, I might not go regular. I said, but I'm going to go this Sunday. And so... Uh, and I called Vicky, and I said, Vicky, I said, it's, but now remember, it was 3.30 when I got up. When I called Vicky, it was almost 8 o'clock. And, and I said, I couldn't, um, I called her, I said, Vicky, I'm trying hard as I can. I said, don't look like I'm going to make it to meet you there, but you can take me to the service. I said, this bus is going slow as it can be. And she said, well, if, if not, we'll go next weekend. I said, well, I want to go today. So she said, well, we'll see. She said, give me a call. And I hung up. And so all of a sudden, the bus driver started driving fast as he could. And, and I couldn't believe this man was driving a public bus this fast. <laughs> so I told him, I said, slow down. <laughs> he, said, he said, we'll be there in a little bit. 
and I didn't pay no, I didn't pay no attention right then, but he said, we'll be there in a little bit. But I hadn't told him anything about me trying to meet her. So the next thing I know, we was on Pacific Coast Highway in Hawthorne. And so, and so the 232 usually takes, I usually stand, stay there about 30 minutes before I catch the bus. It goes down to Avenue H. And um, man, they, um, that bus was right there. When, I, when we got there, that bus was right there. And by the time, by the time, make a long story short, I got to Trader Joe's at 738. Okay, so Harry could write a book. He, and so if we run over, just cut us off. We're, we, we have so much to share, but we, we're limited on time. But the, the segue to um, Bill and I met for coffee at Starbucks a couple days ago, and really the, the message is that um, so Jesus could have done his miracle all by himself. He didn't need the disciples, but he chose to partner with the disciples and he empowered them. And then the way, the thing that was fascinating me was, okay, there were 5,000 men. So figured out there were probably 20,000 people there with women and children. And he just asked each disciple to break it down to 50 and 100 groups. So you think about our South Bay, you think about the Riviera Village, you take 20,000 people, and how do you get it organized to distribute all that food with those 12 disciples? So um, you, you picture that they're going to be in a grid, they're going to make you know tidy little aisles, very ordinary, simple little task. And it's almost like our own little streets and our own little neighborhood in the South Bay. So just think about if we were to take one little street, one little person on one little street, one little neighborhood, that's all God asks us to do. That's all that, that, that we're called to do. And then you hear um, Bray and uh, James's story last week about how they dipped their toe a little bit further and what God blessed them with and how they're a blessing to Tiger and Tove. And then you hear about, like, um, Todd talking about the Phoenician, the Canaanite. And she was an outsider, right? And, I mean, I feel like an outsider many times. And I, I don't know if you guys do, but I feel like sometimes being an outsider calls us maybe to sometimes help other outsiders. Um, but for me and for Harry and I, our, our relationship started about six years ago. And my dog is his best friend, and we see each other every morning, and he ha he's full of wisdom. He's a Christian man, not the, the, a little bit of a spotty background, but I'll ask you about that. But um, anyway, uh, so if it's, he's been more of a blessing to me than I've been to him. But tell me where you were born, a little bit, quick little bit about your, up, up back, your background and maybe how you met Christ later. Okay, well, well I, I was um, born in Dallas, Texas in 1949. Uh, we came to Dallas, to uh, California in 1954. Uh, uh, my dad was in the Army, and they just stationed him over here, so we had to come out here. Um, I was raised in Compton, California, basically all my life. Uh, I was a problem child. Out of five, it was five children, but I was the only one that was a problem child. And I was... Um, I've been arrested from everything, from petty theft to murder. I've never been convicted of all those things, but I've been arrested for them because I was that type of a person that they would say, well, let's go get Harry. He might be good for this, you know. Uh, I didn't, I felt like there was no God. My dad was a preacher, 
In fact, if you've ever been to Los Angeles, you know where the where the uh, church is right there. The owner Crenshaw, he used to be a minister there. Uh, sometimes if I'm talking, if I don't, if you don't understand me, because I, sometimes I talk and I don't understand what I'm saying myself, so it's okay. Uh, I um, I used to tell my friends when I was like 15, I don't believe in no God. But there is a God. He's been with me for a long time, and I didn't know it. I faced death many times, and just recently. You know, I had a car wreck in a van. I had a van, a wreck with my van. Not my van, but a person's van that was letting me use it. And I was on the Highway 395 going to visit my family out in Victorville. And um, the uh, car in front of me stopped on his brakes real fast, and I hit it. The front, the front part of the van was smashed all the way up to the windshield, and and it scared me to death. Cause I was looking for something to be bleeding, something to be hurt, something. Nothing was hurt. I was okay. You know, I've had all kinds of. Uh, well, first of all, I was um, reason I'm in this chair. That was my next question. Talk about the um, train platform. Right? I fell off the platform for the metro train at the burning station. If you know it's high up, I fell over the platform and I broke, I didn't break, but I damaged um, number two vertebrate all the way to the number seven. So I couldn't, I was completely paralyzed. But the um, doctors was wrong. I used to have a bad attitude when I was in the hospital. Everybody in this ward were, were uh, people who had some type of paralysis, was paralyzed some kind of way. And uh, the nurses, I used to call them all kinds of names. And one of the nurses says, what's wrong with you? You got a bad attitude. I said, uh, they already told me I ain't going to walk no more. I said, uh, she said, who is they? I said, the doctor. She said, is the doctor's last name God? She said, that's all I want you to tell me is his name. Amen. And, uh, and so I, uh, I didn't pay no mind at first, but just every day after she get off of her tour, when she was supposed to go home, she would come in there and move my legs. Every day, I was in the hospital six months. Every day she would come move my legs. And so, you know, I can move, I can, I can get out of this chair, but I got to hold on to something to, to get where I need to go. And uh, one day I had to use the bathroom and the nurses was on, a, you know, the blue code or some kind of code where flashes and they have an emergency somewhere. So all the nurses and stuff, well, nobody there to answer, no call about I got to the restroom, you know. So I kept trying to move my legs and move my legs. I didn't move my legs, but I moved the toe. And boy, I was smiling I was happy. I was really happy because I knew that, that, that if I move that toe, I'm gonna move some other than that toe. And so before long, I could get up and go to the bathroom myself. But I didn't tell the nurse, you know. And uh, so one day they came to, you know, they had a hoist over my bed where they would tie me to the hoist and move me to a gurney to see a doctor or whatever. And um, she says, I said, tell her, I says, uh, I said, you don't need the hoist. I said, I can transfer from the bed to the, to the, to the wheelchair. She says, you can't, she says, I ain't got time for no games. You know, she said, let's go. She, I said, but pull the wheelchair right up here. She pushed it up there. I got up. She jumped up and ran out to the hall to call the doctor. The doctor came back in, checked me out and everything. 
So all of a sudden now, I may be able to make it now, too. Well, what, one more real quick question, and then we'll do a little Thanksgiving um, blessing and what we're grateful for. But um, maybe a little bit about where you, what your living situation is now and how that um, has impacted you recently. Well, uh, thanks to this lady right here holding the mic. You know, I used to be sleep, I used to sleep on the ground out there by slave Trader Joe's, and uh, people was giving me a little money, and, but I was I wasn't spending it because I, I never have had habits. I just was a bad boy. I didn't ever have drugs, alcohol, or none of that. So she, um, well, let me see where Mary met. She, uh, um, she, she should give me money. Her and her husband, Greg. But but basically, I would save it, and when I got up to $200, I went to the uh, bank, the Wells Fargo Bank right there on, on the corner, and I um, opened up a checking account. And when I got up enough, I got an apartment in uh, Long Beach. But they had like rats, brooches, bed bugs, drug dealers, and stuff like that. But it was better than sleeping on the ground. But I told her about the rat was in the bed with me, you know. When I woke up to use the bathroom and there was a rat in the bed with me, I told her about it. And so she uh, found somebody that she knew who had a, who knew somebody had a, um, had a room for rent in, in the house. And so she got that for me. I've been in, I've been, I got out of that situation in Long Beach, so now I'm in Hawthorne and uh, all because of her. And she's a real nice lady. So, no, well, it wasn't really about me, but an army of people really prayed, and there's a local guy that you probably a lot of, you know, uh, Neil Drinkward, out of his church. So now Harry lives in a Christian home with a Christian landlord, and they're very loving, and it's, it, it was a real blessing, I think, for all of us. But um, so I'm just wrapping it up and coming up to Thanksgiving this week. Harry has been a real blessing to me. So um, I would just want to say, and with um, Bill's gospel, uh, I'm thankful for God entrusting us with a small plot of land to feed. I'm thankful for unlikely friendships. I'm thankful for being an outsider. I'm thankful for ordinary circumstances. And I'm thankful when God nudges us to get our toes wet. Okay. I'd just like to say my name's Harry Hicks. I have a daughter that's 53 years old. I have three granddaughters, four great-grandkids, and um, they live up north in Victorville, Bakersfield, and stuff like that. And also, Harry uh, makes his rent in cash the first of every month. He'll go starving for a week. He'll support his children and grandchildren before he'll even eat himself to make his rent. So. Hopefully, you guys get to know him a little bit better. If you're in Trader Joe's or around that area, just stop and say hi. Harry, thank you. Todd, will you come up and pray for Harry? Yeah. Uh, so, Father, thank you for this man and his family and um, the, the story of how you have um, reached into his life to bring uh, your love and so many miracles through other people. And we pray for so many more Harrys that are out there that need your love, that need your support, that need a person like Vicki, just, just a small token of, of um, gratitude and just a small portion of her life to give to another person that changes everything. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Harry. The uh, elements are being passed. And, um, you know, as you listen to Harry's story and you think about Jesus taking the bread, the loaves, and breaking it, um, we have that same opportunity to participate in that supper. And um, so the bread represents Jesus' body, which was uh, offered to us, sacrificed on the cross for our brokenness, to bring us life. And the cup, it represents, um, it represents the blood that Jesus knew was shed when John the Baptist lost his life. Jesus followed in that same pathway, giving his life, sacrificing his life for us. And out of that gift, we're able now to express compassion to the people around us. Um, just our little quarter. Just that place where we can make a difference. So um, I didn't grab any communion elements, but what I'm going to ask you to do is um, let's participate together and uh, take the bread. This is Christ's body, which is given for you. And then take the cup. And just know that this small, tiny bit of grape juice represents the lifeblood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. Well, we've been together uh, in a new space. It's very fresh. Uh, it just feels expansive. It's as expansive as God's belief in us as we leave this place. So we want to try something a little bit different today. If you can put up that slide on the screen there, Charlie. No, Char yeah, Charlie. Someone, yeah, put it, put it up there. So there's going to be a responsive reading. And I'll read the first line. And I want you to shout out the second line. And we'll work our way all the way through it. So you can see that you're going to say, we send to the cross of Christ three times. And at the very end, all our hopes, you're going to say, we set on the risen Christ. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. We're trying this out. It comes from the country of Kenya. And some incredible pastors and theologians there have written a whole liturgy. And they end their service with this declaration. And this can be our declaration this morning as we go from this space. So you see the words, I'll read, and then you response with a full-throttled confidence. All our problems, all our difficulties, all the devil's works, all our hopes we set on the risen Christ. He is risen for us. God bless you. Have an amazing week wherever your Thanksgiving takes you. We love you.